This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Lit podcast, Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. Hi, I'm Christy Shriver. And I'm Gary Shriver, and coming to you from Memphis, Tennessee, this is the How to Love Lit podcast. And this is our poetry supplement to the book, Lord of the Flies. This is on Wilfred Owen's war poem, Dulce et Decorum Est. Facebook, and we really hope that you are. So if you're not, look us up and be our friends, How to Level It Podcast. You may have noticed that sometime this summer, we launched our amateur TV commercials. And amateur being the operative (laughs) word. We know that you probably noticed at least two things. Number one, we're clearly not auditioning for careers as Hollywood producers or actors, but also, uh, we probably noticed that we're not launching uh, these episodes the same week that we're uh, producing them. Um, and that's true. Uh, of course, there's a couple of reasons for that, but mostly we hope to always launch a new episode every Sunday at noon, no matter what's going on in our lives. So we try to stay ahead of the game. But if you're curious, in real time, we are recording this episode on July 1st, in our case, the middle of the summer. So... Retroactively, happy Canada Day. But (laughs) in Memphis, uh, July 1st can be kind of a sad day because teachers start back to school on July 31st. So the Uh, countdown has begun. mm. If you're not familiar with American schools, our school year actually starts in the fall. But every state and really even every school district, we all start at different times. I have a friend in Massachusetts and they don't start until September. Well, it's so unbearably hot in Memphis in August, we might as well be indoors anyway. That's true. So, But um, true, that's true for our California friends as well. And we get out of school in the middle of May, and some of those districts go until June. So that's just a bit of Americana for you about how our school systems work here, if you're not familiar with them. But back to what we're doing today. Uh, and I guess I see this week as kind of a segue in this regard, because in every... Uh, city in America, no matter where you go to school, we're celebrating the 4th of July, which is our Independence Day. In Memphis, uh, lots of us, if we're fortunate enough, go try to go to the lake where it's cool and get on a boat. But for us, well, we don't have a boat, we don't have a lake, so we go downtown. And usually this involves barbecue, listening to bands, and ultimately the fireworks show. It's fun. Everybody's out and about, even though it's sticky and hot. 
But ultimately, the fireworks are supposed to remind us of the fight Francis Scott Key witnessed during the War of 1812. And of course, that connects to our episode today because we are going to be looking at one of the most anthologized war poems in the English language, Wilfred Owen's famous poem, Duce et Decorum Est. Now, this is our third poetry supplement, and I know Christy is hoping that she is sucking you into the poetry cult. I don't know how many of you have been drawn in yet. Um, but anyway, we'll see how you like this one. Christy, why are we reading this particular poem after Lord of the Flies? That's a good question. And to be honest, there's not a real direct connection that's as obvious like what you, we saw with Raisin in the Sun or with Fahrenheit 451. But I picked this poem for a couple of reasons. First of all, a lot of people know it, and you may have remembered it from school, or you may be studying it this year. If you're going to be a senior, that's usually when people look at it. It's about war, and so is Lord of the Flies. But thirdly, uh, I see a lot of connections between these two soldier writers. Both Owen and Golding served their country honorably and were brave, and in both cases they participated, although not in the same war, in war, and it really messed with their psyche. I'm sure that is the case, of course, for every soldier. But uniquely, they used their skills as writers to really speak out about the effects that the war had on them. And although they're not really saying the same thing, they're both saying something that clearly has resonated through the years and speaks beyond their immediate circumstances. So let's talk about uh, Wilfred Owen, the person. He was born in 1893 in a town called Oswestry. I hope I'm saying that right. Probably not. (laughs) I know, Oswestry, (laughs) England. It's a small town of around a little bit less than 20,000 residents, I think, and it's had a real strong military history presence. Um, Owen's life, to be honest, was really rather average. His family was middle class, certainly not affluent, and He tried to get into university, was rejected. He became interested in becoming a clergyman, but he got sick living in the damp, unheated vicarage, so he had to come home. He taught school, and he tutored in France. But by 1916, he had enlisted and received a commission as a lieutenant in the Manchester Regiment and was heading back to France, this time not as a tutor, but as a soldier. And of course, uh, the let- he wrote a lot of letters to his mother all throughout his life. And through these letters, we can kind of see what he was feeling. And he was excited to go to war, I guess, like all the other British boys of his day. And the impression that you get from his letters is he kind of felt glory bound. However, as I guess war always does, it doesn't take much for this dreaminess to kind of come crashing down. It's interesting that he enlisted and left for France, think about these dates, on December 29, 1916. On January 12, the following year, so what is that, like two weeks in? Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, The incident occurs that he is going to write about in this famous poem, Duce de Quorum Est. Although he doesn't actually write the poem till much later, the event lingers in his mind and we were going to see throughout the poem that it probably lingered really throughout the rest of his short life but before we go any further gary i want you to talk to us about the times what's going on in england or europe last time we talked about england and europe was when we were reading dover beach or in the last poem and we were in the middle of the pax britannica and Clearly, that's come to an end. That is coming to an end, and we're verging on World War I uh, in regards to this poem. And you're going to see a whole shift in the entire geopolitical structure. So there, the, the world of 1850, when we um, looked at the first poem, Dover Beach has dramatically changed by the time we look at this poem. Britain is... I don't want to say in decline, but it doesn't have the uh, the military dominance that it had enjoyed for over a century. Um, it was starting to decline somewhat as an economic power. World War One, uh, of course, Britain will be on the winning side and will be part of the contributing to the Versailles Treaty, which is eventually going to lead to World War Two. 
But during that inter, interwar period between World War One and World War Two, you do see a sharp decline in the military and economic prowess that Britain had once had. So they are in decline. Um, if I could ever recommend any movie for someone to watch, I really think everyone should see Peter Jackson's documentary, They Shall Not Grow Old. That really gave me, really informed my vision of what this war really looked like. Of course, it uses actual World War One. World War One. I, I have a hard time saying that word too. <laughs> World War. I know one. too many R's and L's. Uh, uh, but in the movie, he kind of cleans it up uh, in terms of the production of the of the actual film that people were recording during the time, and really gives us an understanding of what. Uh, that war actually looked like. But anyway... It's really a fascinating movie. Um, he hires lip readers to come in and read what these people are saying in this old black and white footage, and they add dialogue, and they they standardize the speed of the movie. So all of a sudden, this jerky, black and white, grainy film comes to life immediately, and you see these World War One soldiers as human as you would any other group. And there's exactly exactly what uh, Wilfred Owen's poem is about. Um, the title, Dulce et Decorum Est, which is also a little hard for me to say, it's obviously Latin, and it comes from the very famous um, aphorism, aphorism from the Roman poet Horace, Dulce et Decorum Est Pro Patria More. And it means, really, it's sweet and glorious to die for your country. And of course, this famous line was well known at the time uh, of World War One, but it was created uh, on the time of Caesar Augustus, who's the nephew of Julius Caesar, which, by the way, is a play we'll be reading in a not yes. too distant future. Mm-hmm. But I guess it was a line and has always been a line used to recruit soldiers first for the Roman army and then, of course, ever since uh, and World War One, it was also used to recruit. So, Gary, this concept of glory, it's been around for a long time when it comes to wars. What do, what do you have to say about that? Uh, it has been around for a long time, and the concept of glory has been used to recruit militarily since even before the, the age of Rome. And uh, glory has a very significant uh, concept um, well, it is a very significant concept for this reason. Um, when we start recruiting young men for wars and things of that nature, uh, using the term glory, it's not about uh, this concept of fame. Glory really, in this sense, carries with it the idea of value. And it's really interesting. if In every culture around the world, just about well, certainly every industrialized culture, there's a, one demographic in every nation that commits the most crimes. That demographic is young men between the ages of 18 to 25. That is the most prominent age group to join a gang, um, if, if you do that. Why I mention these kind of things, oh, I want to say this too. Uh, during the Great Depression, the Civilian Conservation Corps created by the Roosevelt administration was specifically designed to recruit young men ages 18 to 25. So this is an age group when men, young men, are seeking value and they're seeking direction, and it's common in every single culture. And so when we talk about these young men signing up to go fight in World War I and they're pitching this as an attempt at glory, it wasn't like these guys were saying, oh, this is going to be a famous thing. This is going to make me famous. The attitude was more of, "I'm um, this is a thing that will make me as a man have value. And men in that age group are particularly sensitive to finding value and direction in their life. And it's no coincidence that even in the United States, when the military recruits, the age they aim at overwhelmingly is age 18 to 25. Because it's not because these young men uh, lack... Have strong backs or something like well, that. Yeah, it's because that group of young men is at a time in their life where they're the most seeking value for what they're about and what their life means. And so this, the military provides a lot of that. Well, I can see it in, uh, in Owen's case. I mean, he seems to be kind of floating around, not really with any clear direction Mm -hmm. at this point in his life and kind of hops into the war as a way of, I guess what you're saying is finding some sort of significance. Yes, finding significance. And, you know, young men have to. That's part of their journey into manhood is to find significance somewhere. 
So Owen's war experiences really just are going to dispel, obviously, fairly quickly, the idea of the fun war. Uh, According to the letters that he writes home, the physical experiences he was going through were just absolutely brutal. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course, there's many events of attacks. It's winter, and they've had record-breaking cold weather. He witnesses many, many friends die. There's an account where he falls into a 15-foot hole because he's looking in the dark for a buddy, and he gets a concussion when he falls in. But there's no opportunity for him to get any relief because he gets stuck in a field with his fellow soldiers for four days and nights fighting. He says in a letter, I kept alive on brandy, the fear of death, and the glorious prospect of the cathedral town just below. There's another account where he had to lay in a foxhole for several days with a dead body six feet away because of the shelling over their heads was kept them trapped in and they were in this wet snow. So by June, um, he's done. He's been sent to hospitals because he's had all these problems with his head. They think it's the concussions. Uh, but actually after the doctors look at him, they decide that he has suffering what they called at the time shell shock. Mm-hmm. Um, he's sent to this famous hospital called Craig Lock Heart war hospital in edinburgh and he receives a treatment from a neurologist and a psychologist and of course when he gets there he's stuttering he can't talk and by the time that he leaves he's quite relieved and it's also there though that he meets a man that basically is ultimately going to help launch his poetry career and really introduces the world to the poetry of wilfred owen a man who at the time was a lot more famous than he was of course no one knew who will wilfred owen was but this guy's name was Siegfried Sassoon. Now, I know it feels like we're kind of going off the rails and, and into storytelling, but I feel like this story is fascinating, and, and it gives credibility to the argument Owen is making in his poem. Owen is going to write basically everything that he's ever going to write in his life between August of 1917 of this year until September of 1918 of the next year. So it's just a very small piece of time. Only five poems were ever published in, in his lifetime, and two of those were anonymous in this little flyer they had there at the hospital. Um, after Owen's death in November of 1918, there's a spoiler for you, mm. um, Sassoon mm. is going to edit uh, a collection of his poems, and it becomes a bestseller in 1920, but it wasn't until 1963 Um, are most of his works collected in a larger anthology called The Collected Poems of Wilfred Owen. So let's go, I want to tell you about this uh, relationship between Sassoon and Owen, because this is kind of how the story unfolds. So in in June of 1917, Siegfried Sassoon is going to issue something that he's going to call the Soldier's Declaration. And it's this 236 word, which is really short, a protest against what he's going to call the, quote, evil and unjust war. And I think it's worth noting that in Britain, also in the United States as well, that at this time period, this sort of thing is not done and would not be taken very well. Patriotism was at an all-time high, so war dissenting was deeply frowned upon in mm. World War One. No protests, huh? No, not we protest everything now. Uh, there was very little of that. Well, it was discussed in Parliament. Like the fact that he wrote this declaration, it wasn't ignored. They discussed it in Parliament, and it was quoted uh, in the Times. And they determined that Sassoon was mentally unfit for further military service, and they declared him unstable. They said he'd had a nervous breakdown, and they sent him to this same psych hospital where, coincidentally, Owen was being treated. So (laughs) because he wrote this declaration, he he clearly had lost his mind, basically, was, was the governmental position. So what did the statement actually say in its short 236 words? So he basically says, and I'm going to quote the opening line, I am making this statement as an act of willful defiance of military authority. He's going to call the war a, quote, war of aggression and conquest. And he says it's being deliberately prolonged by those who have the power to end it. 
that enlisted men are being sacrificed because of political errors and uncertainties, and that the politicians and the military authorities were not the only ones at fault for the suffering of the troops, but that the continuance of the agonies are made possible by the callous complacence of those at home, and this is where what he says, who lack sufficient imagination to realize the extent of these frontline agonies. And interestingly enough, he was correct. He was correct. Uh, as a matter of fact, I want to sidebar here for a moment and reference Eric remarks all quiet on the Western Front. Uh, there's a scene in the book where the uh, the main character in that story has been on the front lines in World War One, and he goes home and he realizes nobody knows what's really going on at the front. Uh, it's not in the newspapers. Uh, it, nobody's talking about it, and he can no longer identify with people in his new family and now will be soldiers at the front. So there's very much a disconnect between the experience of the soldiers and the people back home. And it wasn't too long after meeting Sassoon that Owen takes up this mantle, and he wants to do exactly what the British people could not do for themselves, like what you're talking about. And he wants to make them experience the front lines. So this poem is actually written in October of 1917. And unlike uh, maybe some of the other poems that we've looked at, uh, it's rhetorical. What do I mean by that? He's deliberately delivering an argument. He's trying to use this poem as a way of persuading people of the same thing that his friend Sassoon was trying to do, except he's going to use this poetic form. So this poem was written literally to change the minds of people about what the war was really all about. And actually, it's exactly what it does. Mm -hmm. Before this poem, all the poetry of the time was patriotic. And after that, we're going to see a shift in war poetry. It's never going to go back to that sort of thing. Um, And for us, 100 years later, it it really kind of seems difficult to believe. It is for me that people were not aware of what was going on in the front. How could you not be? Uh, We see these images of death, uh, and I've actually read that a lot of the things that um, people got out of horror movies when they were beginning to depict horror movies, they got from these images from Mm -hmm. World War I and World War II, but we're used to those. In fact, you know, the video game industry is monetizing it, Uh, so it's hard for me to imagine how could anyone be so naive. Do you have an answer for that? Well, I don't have an answer. I have this observation. Have I ever talked about this phrase, the arrogance of the presence? Present? Multiple times. <laughs> yes. You have to keep in mind, you have had exactly 100 years to look backward on World War One to the people who are experiencing it in real time. Of course, they didn't know. And of course, and later on, we're going to talk about the war. Nobody had any idea of the scope of the enormity of this war. And what to do with it. Anyway, so um, in 1918, the concept of government-sponsored political propaganda was not considered sketchy, but was a common practice even in the United States. And a very interesting uh, side note, if you're interested in World War I, is just do an image search of World War I posters. And you can see the highly manipulative nature of these posters, and they're all sponsored by the government. Well, this poem is actually addressed to a woman named Jessie Pope in the first draft. I think he eventually dropped, you know, calling her out by name. But she was famous for writing these motivational poems that were talking to these young British boys to sign up for the military. In that Peter Jackson movie, there's a a cute little quote. A a kid goes up to the recruitment station and they say, how old are you? And he says... 15 and he the guy says well you have to be 18 come back tomorrow and so kind of implying that you know just tell us what we want to hear and come back and sign up so they were aggressively seeking out you know younger and younger children according to the uh to that documentary anyway and her most famous poem uh and the one that people really believe owen was calling out of is was called who's for the game so, Gary, I asked uh, if you if you could pull that up and bring it. Would you mind reading to us and read to us the kind of stuff that people were really being guilted into at the time? 
I will. And before I do, I want to make this observation. So Golding writes Lord of the Flies as a direct reaction to another book. Right. And so now we have um, we have our uh, Owen right here writing a poem in direct opposition to Pope's poem. So there's a link with right. Lord of the Flies. Coral Island was this idealized version of, right. of an island, and this is an idealized version of war for sure. Which I think is a great point. This is the World War One is a classic case where idealized life ran head on into brutal, murderous reality, and uh, people could not resolve the issues that came out of it. Anyway, I'll read the poem. It's titled, Who's for the Game? Who's for the game, the biggest that's played, the red crashing game of a fight? Who'll grip and tackle the job unafraid, and who thinks he'd rather sit tight? Who'll toe the line for the signal to go? Who'll give his country a hand? Who wants a turn to himself in the show, and who wants a seat in the stand? Who knows it won't be a picnic, not much, yet eagerly shoulders a gun. Who would rather much come back with a crutch than lie low and be out of the fun? Come along, lads, but you'll come on all right, for there's only one course to pursue. Your country is up to her neck in a fight, and she's looking and calling for you. What do you think of that poem? Well, it's it speaks exactly to all the masculine concerns of a young boy age 18 to 25, basically saying, are you going to be a coward that has nothing to say? Uh, as a matter of fact, that reminds me, one of the, the best propaganda posters of World War I shows an older man with two children sitting on his knee, and the little daughter is looking up at Dorlin, her dad, and she says, Daddy, what did you do in the war? And the caption underneath talks about, what will you tell your children? Oh, my gosh. So that's exactly the kind of stuff that went on in World War One. Well, that's the poem that Owen is thinking of when he's lying in these trenches thinking, this isn't fun at no, all. <laughs> this was not a game. And this line, who would rather come back with a crutch than lie low and be out of the fun? Yeah, it, uh, exactly. Yeah. So in light of that poem, um, I want to read our poem once, and then we're going to go through through it, the kind of the technical stuff and the imagery together, stanza by stanza. And then I want to get your thoughts on your reactions on what you think uh, he means and why this poem is still read today. So unlike Jesse Pope's poem, this is Duce et Decorum Est by Wilfred Owen. Bent double, like old beggars under sacks, knock-kneed, coughing like hags, we cursed through the sludge till on the haunting flares we turned our backs and towards our distant rest began to trudge. Men marched asleep. Many had lost their boots, but limped on, bloodshod. All went lame, all blind, drunk with fatigue, Deaf even to the hoots of gas shells dropping softly behind. Gas! Gas! Quick, boys! An exodus of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time. But someone still was yelling out and stumbling and floundering like a man in fire or lime. Dim through the misty panes and thick green light, as under a green sea, I saw him drowning. In all my dreams before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. If in some smothering dreams you too could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in and watch the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face like a devil sick of sin, if you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth-corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud of vile, incurable sores on innocent tongues. My friend, you would not tell us with such high zest to children ardent for some desperate glory, the old lie, duce et decorum es pro patria mori. Woo! There's a lot. Intense. It is intense. Um, there's a lot of technical stuff in there that I want to kind of get through it. Um, it's mostly written in what we call iambic pentameter, meaning that there's a beat, da-dunt, 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 going on throughout the poem. Uh, remember that 
things like beats and sound devices, they can't create meaning, but they're there and designed specifically to support an idea that the author is trying to communicate through the images of the words. So in this case, when you hear this ba-dump, 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 it's not, you know, the passionate heart ba-dump, but it may be a couple of things, the beating of the soldier's heart or the pacing of the soldier's um, feet. Uh, we also see here that it's a regular sound and that the rhyme is also regular, but you may or may not hear it because when you read a poem, you know, the traditional way that uh, people read poems when they're little is they stop at the end of the line, but you're not supposed to stop at the end of the line. You're always supposed to read it according to the punctuation. And these poems, this particular poem is heavily punctuated, but it's but there's a very, very regular rhyming pattern. What you're supposed to see here with the rhymes is that um, every other line rhymes. So sax rhymes with backs and sludge rhymes with trucks. So we have an alternating rhyme scheme like A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, E, F, E, F, G, H, G, H, I, J, I, J, all the way down. So you're going to, it never deviates from that. So it's consistent. He was very, and he's very consistently maintaining a beat. Well, the beat isn't hyper consistent, but the rhymes are. The idea being the soldier is doing everything perfectly. The rhymes are being done perfectly, uh, but the world itself, the outside circumstances are not. Um, the punctuation in this poem, I find to be really fascinating and that's such an English nerdy thing to say <laughs> but you described it to me as really his genius in this writing I think so because look what he's doing here uh, in the first sentence of the poem it's 33 words long and it's meant to kind of um, it's a long periodic sentence a periodic sentence is when the subject and the verb combination don't come until the end and so what we see in the first line is a picture of the soldier himself. And he's bent down, not standing up straight like you're talking about on those propaganda posters, but he's turned around going back from the front trench to the back of the line, and he looks like an old beggar. Now, Gary, before I go any farther... I want people to under kind of see in their mind's eye, what do these trenches kind of look like? Um, I want to describe the trenches to you, but before I do, I want to say one thing about World War One that's very important to understand and why it impacts Owen the way it does and why it, it affects the consciousness of so many people. There were innumerable wars on the continent of Europe throughout history. Uh, this one is different. If I could impress anything on a listener, I want to impress upon you the gigantic scope of this war. The war world had never seen a war this huge. This is the first war in history to be completely industrialized. That meant whatever weapons you used to kill people with were now mass-produced in large numbers. This was the first technological war that had such new technology that increased the ability to destroy and kill and one of the most significant characteristics of this war was the Western Front, where very quickly, within a matter of weeks, the war bogged down and neither side could get an advantage. The Germans couldn't advance. The British and the French couldn't advance. And by the way, I want to point out the United States is still three years away from even getting involved in this war at this point. So what happens is the war stagnates on the Western Front. Both armies dig in a series of trenches and so the war automatically halts. And um, so these soldiers now have a job where they rotate to the front lines in these trenches. At any given time that they were on front line duty, they might have to go over the top, run across the no man's land, which could be as little as a few hundred yards, into enemy machine gun fire. If they took the trench, the enemy would retreat to the next trench behind them. And maybe you did it on Monday. On Tuesday, you might reverse the order, and the enemy may take your trench. But the bottom line is this. The soldiers rotated for several days to the front lines where they are in constant uh, fear of death, constantly being exposed to death. 
and then they would rotate off the front trench line. They would go through the support trenches back to where there were field hospitals, where there was food, where there was shelter, and a new group would rotate to the front lines. And so uh, you had this constant life of moving to the front near death, moving away for a, a brief respite from the and death. And never making progress. Never making progress. Just as a side note, the German trenches, the Germans really understood they were going to be there for a while. So their trenches were much more organized and much more clean and health conscious. The British and the French trenches were the ones that you see that were full of mud and water and decomposing bodies and disease and things of that nature. So... Uh, and yes, they did. They it was just the most horrible living conditions, and it just dehumanizing is not the word. Living in these trenches just stripped you of even your senses, even registering in your brain anymore. So this is what we see here. These guys, I guess, it's their time to rotate off, because it says bent down like old beggars under sacks, knock kneed, coughing like hags. We cursed through sludge till on the haunting flares, which would be like the fight, we turned our backs and toward our distant rest to trudge. And I want to point out a couple of things because there's a subtle argument being made. First of all, they're bent double like old beggars. Argument one, Wilfred is trying to right off the bat say, you've been told that if you're a soldier, you're going to be this Adonis-like sexy you know, woman magnet, and you're going to be a double down old beggar man pretty much immediately. Knock need, coughing, sickly, like hags. Well, hags are ugly old women. He's emasculated these soldiers immediately. And then he says this, we cursed through the sludge. Now, cursed isn't a verb in the sense that it's not, that doesn't, in other words, the walking is this cursed thing. And sludge, I had to look that up because I didn't really know what sludge was. I thought maybe it's mud. But it was described as, or it's composed of like organic waste. So like feces in there in the trumps and empty shells and iron scraps and then human flesh. Yes, decomposing bodies. Yeah. All th- so they have to march through this sludge Till on the haunting flares, we turn our backs. So we see that he's one of them. So he's speaking in the first person, plural, trying to get some rest. And he's going to say, men march to sleep. That's a telegraphic sentence. It only has three words. You're supposed to think we're marching, but we're not even awake, consciousness. And then we're going to see this. Many had lost their boots, but limped on, bloodshod. So we see a lot of this extra punctuation. And when you see that, and you try to read it, I don't know if you could tell when I was doing it, it made me stumble because there's too much punctuation because they're stumbling. Right. They're walking and they're limping on bloodshot. So now we're, we've been reduced, not from, at first we got, became old and then we became women. Now we're going to become animals because bloodshot sounds like bloodshed, but you shod the shoe goes, that's what you put on a horse. Mm-hmm. So the idea is we're not even humans at this point. And he goes, all went lame, all blind. So now he's losing his vocabulary. There's no verbs there. Drunk with fatigue, deaf, even to the hoots. There's the sounds of the, the living thing is, is the bombs of gas shells dropping softly behind. Now, I don't know if you're reading this on your cell phone. There's several different versions of this poem. Some of them call them tried five nines that dropped behind and a five nine is the name of the the type of shell yeah but mine just says drop gas shells dropping softly behind that's the stanza one which is basically a description a physical description of what a soldier really looks like this is the real thing not the poster uh, that you saw this is what we look like and then we're going to see this action gas gas Quick, boys, an ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time. So we see this movement, um, this panic. Panic movement, yes. Yes. And then this interesting word, ecstasy. And all the commentators go nuts over that word because they don't know what to make of it. And you have to remember that poets rewrite their poems many, many times and nothing is left to chance and nothing is, ah, I'll just throw this in there. Uh, Ecstasy 
I had I went ahead and looked that up too. It means the state of being beside yourself, you know, being thrown into a frenzy, which of course would be understandable. Uh, it's considered an, uh, a product of anxiety, fear, mm. but also passion. And nowadays, ecstasy is way more associated with passion. And it was back in those days too. I looked it up. So why put a positive word here when you're talking about being gassed and the set, except that there is this adrenaline rush, this energy, this maybe this positive energy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets that are just in time because if you don't, you're going to die. So I don't know if there's some sort of euphoria associated with near-death experience that would make him call it ecstatic. He's speaking from his own personal experience, really, of, of how it felt to be at that moment between life and death. Well, it's interesting because uh, other World War One soldiers have talked about this experience of you're, you're so numb, your senses are so numb, you don't even feel alive anymore. But the real existential threat of death, when it really comes, all of a sudden the survival force kicks in. And it's almost like, there's, there's a part of your brain that does it for you, even against your will. Many soldiers have recorded that kind of experience. Well, and that's kind of what he's describing. But, of course, somebody doesn't make it, and they're, they're still yelling and stumbling out, and they're floundering. Well, that's the movement that a fish makes. It's like that flopping thing, uh, like a man, and he says, in fire or lime, which is also a strange word to use, but it's the material that they used in the trench uh, the, to cover all the dead bodies and to make them kind of decompose faster. And it says this, dim through the misty panes in thick green light. So in other words, that's how he looks at them. It's mm-hmm. mustard gas. From his mask. But through the mask, it looks green. And it's a sea of green. And he sees him drowning. But he says this, I saw him. So now it's personal. It's not we marching back. It's I. I saw him drowning. And of course, we see a break here. And this, the next stanza only has two lines. And I think it's because they're supposed to stand out because this is the part. Remember, this happened two weeks into his career. And he's writing this a lot later. And he says, In all my dreams before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. And of course, those are participles. And in other words, the idea is. I think about him every night in right. all my dreams. And death by gas in World War One was one of the most particularly cruel ways to die. So the psychological effects, it's not just the fight. It, it never leaves you. The mm-hmm. haunting, ghoulish effects linger on and on. And then we see this change, and he's going to really get rhetorical because he changes from first-person plural the first person singular, it's really personal and passionate. Now he's going to point his finger and he's going to say this. If in some smothering dream, you too could pace. And there's three things he's going to say. If you could pace, if you could watch, if you could hear. So in other words, all of your senses, he says, in some other smothering dreams, because these dreams smother me, you too could pace the pine behind the wagon we flung him in. And he's remembering that guy wasn't even maybe even dead yet. We just fling him in there and watch the white eyes writhing in his face. The eyes, I don't know that can literally writhe because writhe means to twist and contort like your body was, but you can imagine. Like convulsing eyes. Yes. And he says his hanging face. So his face is just drooping over. And he says this, like a devil sick of sin. In other words, the devil... This doesn't even get joy. The devil, whose whole job is to destroy lives, is sick of this. Yes. It's mm-hmm. gone farther than anything. And he says, if you could hear, that's just if you could see every jolt, the blood. So the guy who's in this process of dying is not just shaking in a way that I can see it. I can hear him. He's gargling in his froth corrupted lungs. So this, this auditory imagery says it's obscene. And he says this, and this is the line. It's been rewritten. If you look at all of his drafts more than any other line, bitter as the cud of vile. Now, a cud is what, and you can help me a little bit on this because I don't know about cows, but it's, <laughs> they, don't they, like, they throw up? 
and yes. then they swallow it again, yes. and they throw it, up. That's part of their digestive process. Okay, that's what he's talking about. It's yeah. going back and over. Mm-hmm. And, but then he, it's a kind of a pun, because there's this expression, chew the cud, and he wants you to chew on this. Think about this. Meditate on this for a minute. It's obscene, bitter as the cud of vile. And he goes, says, incurable sores on innocent tongues. I, I don't know if he's talking about like trench trench mouth yeah what, a common disease for soldiers in world war one and he says if you could just chew on that for a minute then he goes my friend you would not tell with such high jest to children because these are little boys ardent and of course ardent is comes from the latin word ardor which means to burn they're burning for some desperate glory and you know they are you wouldn't tell those children the old lie, duce decora est pro patria mori. And of course, the last phrase isn't written in the full iambic pentameter. He stops it in the middle. He says, you wouldn't tell them that old lie, duce e decorum est pro patria mori. And it's over. What do you think? Oh, well, well done. And you said that this is one of the most anthologized poems ever. Explain what that means. I don't know what it means, you know, because, and, I, and I've thought about that. We don't live in the reality of World War I. I can understand, you know, if I had a brother or a, a father or a cousin who was in World War I and I read that and I really thought about the death and the pain that he's discussing, it would really mess with me. Mm-hmm. But this poem is being read for over a hundred years. And those mm-hmm. images are long gone from our recent memory. So the idea of, of being lied to has to have become metaphorical in some way. The pain, you know, that people suffer. I don't know. What do you think? Well, this poem is so popular uh, with people who've never experienced war. And so I have to ask the question, uh, what is it that resonates? What does he say in this poem that makes people who've never experienced war feel like this speaks deeply to who they are? And there's many interpretations of that. And one that we can throw out there is that everybody's had the experience of believing a particular truth only to have it shattered and the consequences that come from shattering that truth. And people, um, great literature, great music, part of what makes it great is that it's vague enough that people can read their own lives into it and read their own experience to it and adopt it and give it its own meaning. And yes, it's specific enough. I I feel for him, I can I feel what he sees and I mm-hmm. he makes me understand the hurt that doesn't go away and the haunting of the dreams and and it becomes very vivid. And yet when I think about what you just said, really I guess a better way of stating it is that Owen is speaking for all of us. When he says, Duce e decora em is the oldest lie, the old lie, it's older than Horace. Because the idea is, I believed that the glory, like you explained glory in the beginning, my significance was going to come from whatever it is I put my faith in. And I'm going to walk through those trenches, whatever that trench is, and it's going to come crushing down on me. My reality is going to crush down on me. And Owen made us feel it in the, in the metaphor of war, but all of us can kind of feel that in, in the whatever war that we happen to be going through at a personal level. Is it a relationship that I thought this was going to give me meaning and it didn't? Is it a job? Is it whatever it is? Owen has made us all feel what that loss feels like and maybe provided some sort of catharsis. And that's a real gift. And it's more than what, uh, than just a document about a war could ever say. What he did is he very accurately communicated all the horrors of lost humanity that occur in a warlike situation, especially this particular war situation. And then I like what you pointed out in the very last stanza where he turns to the audience and points a finger. Right. And, so, and if you're reading this as the reader, you feel like the one being pointed at. You are. <laughs> okay. So if you're going to do it, he says, if you're good, and you know, here's the thing about him. He wrote this poem in the hospital. Then he turned right around and he went back to the front. Mm-hmm. So he's not saying that 
you know, the war is wrong. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But it's, know it. Know what you're doing. Right. And don't pretend. Yeah, this poem does not have the nihilism that post-World War II writing is going to have. But it does very blatantly say, this, the, uh, this thing about glory, it's, it's wrong. It's not what it is. We don't want it. This is, this is uh, a shattered dream. And, of course, he dies uh, very tragically, not by gas, thank goodness, but through machine gun fire, literally, literally one day before the armistice. And his, I think, if I'm not incorrect, that his family was notified on the day of the armistice wow. of his mm. death. So hats off to a great patriot and to a beautiful writer, Wilfred Owen. Yes. Thank you for joining us again for a poetry supplement. We hope that, uh, like we said earlier, you're slowly being drawn into Christie's poetry cult. Um, all, you have to understand a few rules of how words are used by poets, and you'll be able to uh, start enjoying them like everybody else. So... Thanks for being with us again. If you like what you're listening to in our podcast, please check out our webpage, howtolovelitpodcast.com. We have a Facebook page, How to Love Lit Podcast. We have an Instagram page. We would love to hear from all of you, so please join with us. Be our friend, and peace out. on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns